the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Folks, it's time once again for the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We're glad you're with us. So is uh, Pete Paquette. He is our engineer today. Andrew Herdliska produces the show, and I want to introduce you to Mike Napa. He's out in the foothills of Colorado. His book, Bible Smart Matthew, Q&A for the Curious Soul. Mike, welcome to uh, sunny Orlando. How are you? Hot dog. Thanks so much, Pat. I appreciate you letting me be on the show. How did this book come about? What's the background? You know, I was sitting in a um, in a Bible study once. I had I have I had um, just lost my wife to cancer, mm. and was thinking I needed to get back into a Bible study, get into a group where I could just really get uh, fed. And that next Sunday, there was a um, sign up for a new Bible study group, so I signed up and I went to it, and I found out, oops, this is a group for young adults. This is there. Everybody in there was like twenty five to thirty years old, and I was thinking, I'm just gonna skip this place. I'm gonna. I'm going to go find another group. But those kids were just so nice to me and so warm and loving that I just had to keep going back. Well, one day, about six months later, I'm sitting in the group, and uh, somebody asked a question about uh, Scripture, about the Apostle Paul. And I was like, oh, well, you know, he was a tent maker. And, and I went on like, and they all just kind of stared at me with their mouths open. And I was like, what? And, and one of the guys said, how do you know this stuff? How do, you, how do you know that? And I was like, well, it's just, I mean, common knowledge, right? And it turns out it wasn't. It wasn't common knowledge. These kids were hungry for Jesus, and they wanted to know more about Scripture, but they didn't know how, uh, how to study the Bible, or how to find out anything about Scripture, because all of our, well, the majority of our Scripture knowledge is, is buried behind seminary walls and pastoral studies, and so we kind of leave that to the experts. And I thought, wow, you know, somebody should do something about that. Somebody should just help people like these kids just to have access to all this great information that we have. And I thought about it, and I thought about it, and then finally I thought, wow, you know, maybe somebody is me. So I, uh, after a while, I went and I, I went on my Facebook page, and I posted a note, and I said, hey, I'm looking for volunteers to read one chapter out of the Gospel of Matthew, and then just send me any questions that come to mind as you read. And so I got a ton of questions, and um, added some of my own questions, and put them all together and, and curated them into about 200, a list of 200 questions that go passage by passage through the Gospel of Matthew. And then I just had fun. I went through studying each passage and pulling out questions and trying to answer some of the hard ones and, and learning more myself. So that's how, that's how this whole thing actually began, was just for those kids wanting to know more about Jesus in a Bible study. Mike, your book breaks down into six segments. Uh, The first one I want you to talk about, Jesus' birth and childhood. All right. Well, we start with uh, Matthew. And um, what's important to remember about Matthew was that he was an eyewitness of Jesus' uh, ministry and life. Now, he was not there at his birth nor his childhood, but uh, Matthew did have access to Jesus' mother, Mary, and to Jesus himself to find out about those kinds of things. And so as Jesus is writing about the birth uh, of Jesus, of, excuse me, as Matthew is writing about the birth of Jesus, I think it's interesting that he couches everything really clearly within the Old Testament prophecies. Uh, this is why most people believe that the Gospel of Matthew was written specifically to the Hebrew audience, to Jews. 
And so Matthew's account is just uniquely hip Hebrew in the biblical sense. He emphasizes Jesus as Messiah and as king for a primary, Jew, primarily Jewish audience. And then he couches nearly every moment of Jesus' life in terms of Old Testament prophecies and promises the Messiah. He does it right near the beginning when he says, uh, the virgin will conceive a child, which was, um, was from Isaiah, Isaiah 7, I believe. And so when Matthew begins speaking about the, the birth of Jesus, the first thing he starts with is what we would consider a really boring genealogy. Uh, actually, the very beginning of the gospel begins with a, just a list of names of people uh, who are ancestors of Jesus. And we tend to skip over that. We tend to walk right past that. But this is an important aspect for um, for Matthew's audience, the Jewish audience, because there was a prophecy uh, that was just ironclad as far as the, the perception of the Messiah was, and that was in Isaiah, oh, I can't remember, Isaiah 16, I think. Uh, he says, Matthew, uh, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would come, would be a descendant of David, who would be one from the house of David. And so, what we see in Matthew's genealogy then is Matthew going name by name through a genealogy of the line of the house of David. And he gets down to this royal line all the way to Joseph, uh, Jesus' adopted father, and shows just with a list of names that Jesus fulfills this prophecy in Isaiah 16 that he will be from the house of David. Now, so, <clears throat> Mike, Mike Napa. Tell us about segment two, Jesus' okay. early ministry. This is a fascinating part of your book. <laughs> I'm glad you think so. Um, Jesus' early ministry starts with uh, the meeting with John the Baptist. And I l love this because uh, the John the Baptist was just this, just this, he was, a, he was a crazy man. We would look at him as kind of the crazy homeless guy on the corner who's shouting in the streets. Um, but... John the Baptist was such a unique person, but we also have to ask the question, was there anyone in history of the Bible who was like John the Baptist? And the answer is yes. So John the Baptist was unique, but he was also a symbolic, he also had symbolic associations with Old Testament characters like Samson uh, and Isaac and Samuel. And John conducted himself in the mold of Old Testament prophets like Elijah and Jonah and Elisha. And so in this way, um, although John was this unique kind of wild figure, uh, he also, as Matthew is pointing out, uh, brings to mind these Old Testament men of God who were uh, this example of people who spoke truth and spoke about, um, about the, the, the things of God. Now, there was um, one thing that really caught my attention when I was doing this was when I was looking on the, the temptation of Christ. Um, I have read this story of the temptation of Christ for, I don't know, dozens and dozens of years. And I always kind of figured that Jesus was on the defensive when I was a younger man. I always thought, you know, oh, the devil came out to har harass Jesus and push him around. But as I was reading this, as I was studying this, this is what struck me about, about that passage, Pat. I think, based on what I'm reading here, I think that the devil was scared to death to go out there and meet Jesus. I think Jesus marched into his territory like an invading army and then stood there and said, now what are you going to do about me? Um, we see this in the way that the, the temptation plays out. First of all, the Holy Spirit himself moves Jesus into the, temp into the desert uh, where he waits, and then he waits for 40 days. The devil doesn't come to tempt him for 40 days. When he finally comes to tempt him, the devil does... Nothing he can he can't lay a hand on him. All he can do is wheedle and whine and try to to convince Jesus to do something that he knows he's not going to do. Um, what I noticed here is that Satan in the temptation of Christ is the only one who who performs miracles. Um, he first appears out of nowhere and then he transports Jesus miraculously to the highest point of the Jerusalem temple. And then he transports him again to a high mountain and gives him a supernatural vision of all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus, the one we know who is the miracle worker of all, most miracle working person of all, never works a miracle. The only thing that he does to combat Satan is quote scripture. Boy, that just gives me just such hope because 
Jesus, who had all power to do whatever he wanted, used only the tool that I have to face the temptations of the devil, so that when I am facing the temptation of the devil, I don't need to work miracles. I don't need to go with some supernatural power. All I need is an understanding and application, correct application of the Word of God. So that just, I felt like that was a, that was a unique moment for me. Now, <clears throat> my guest is Mike Napa. He's <clears throat> in beautiful Colorado. Uh, we've got to dive into miracles, parables, and teaching. That's next for us, Mike. Okay, miracles, parables, and teaching. Was there any particular, uh, uh, you know, I, I know you might have some things you want to talk about, but I have to talk about this because this is another thing that, that caught me, if that's all right. I was struck when I was working through the, um, the Sermon on the Mount um, when Jesus began to talk about divorce. Uh, because divorce in our society is a lot, a lot less. Oh, it doesn't have doesn't have the same stigma uh, that Jesus attached to it. And I thought, well, that's just probably our cultural thing. And what I discovered was, actually, um, Jesus was an extremist on divorce, even in his own time. Uh, now, in his time, divorce was kind of a no fault thing, and the woman had no power at all. Uh, it was frowned upon, but as far as men were concerned, they could divorce, divorce a woman for the, the standard was uh, a man could divorce his wife for being, quote, displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. Well, that um, became this wide-ranging justification, according to rabbinical teachings, that a husband could divorce his wife for many reasons. Uh, he could divorce her if she claimed to be a virgin before the marriage and was not, which is what we saw was at play in the, the marriage of Joseph and Mary. Uh, he could also claim that his wife was displeasing because he over, she overcooked his food. That was cause for divorce. Or if he decided that she was less beautiful than another woman, that was cause for divorce. Basically, as long as he could point to any reason why he was displeased, that was counted as something indecent and a legitimate cause for divorce. What um, Jesus did was say, that's just not good enough. Um, now, divorce itself actually predated the time of Moses. And so Moses allowed it in the law, but he did not prescribe it in the law. And then Jesus comes along and he says, uh, divorce is, is just uh, not tolerable. What I found so fascinating about this as I was working through it was um, not so much all the, the rules and implications for the society, but the idea of this. When we think about the thought of divorce, we have to remember that Jesus Christ is calls himself the eternal bridegroom. Mike, we've got to take we, a break for a, a, announcements here. We'll be right back. Mike Knapp okay. is our guest, Bible Smart, Matthew, Q&A for the Curious Soul. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're tuned to AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. My guest is Mike Napa. He's in Colorado. We're talking about his book, Bible Smart. It's about Matthew. Uh, This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. So glad you're with us. Mike, uh, let's just review. We've covered Jesus' birth and childhood, uh, Jesus' early ministry, miracles, parables, and teachings. I want to keep moving. Jesus, excuse me, Jesus' later ministry. That's the next topic. Can you uh, dive into that for us? Sure, sure. Um, I just want to go just a little bit and just finish up with that idea sure. of the divorce in Jesus. Please. So when Jesus, when Jesus is speaking against divorce, he's keeping in mind that he himself is the bridegroom, our bridegroom uh, for all eternity. And so the idea then is that Christ is the, the bridegroom of the church, which is us. And what a, what a wonderful, secure feeling that gives to know that our bridegroom, the one who saves us, is 
absolutely against divorce. He will never turn away. He will never walk away because we've been somehow displeasing to him because we cooked poorly or did something wrong. This is the Christ who we have, our bridegroom, who refuses uh, to have anything to do with divorce. Okay. Now, Jesus' later ministry, right? That's Miracles, correct. That's parables, right. Mm-hmm. and teachings. Um, in, this, uh, in this section, uh, we do some things about all the different kinds of uh, cultural things that come out in here. For instance, there's a section where John's disciples ask Jesus, hey, why doesn't, um, why doesn't your master, why doesn't he fast like everybody else does? And, and um, Christ gives then culturalized references to him being the bridegroom, the cloth, and new wine. He gives all these parables about um, this, this aspect, just in response to a question of, of fasting. And so his first thing is a wedding celebration. When the bridegroom is present, uh, that was an extended affair that required seven days of festivity, including a feast. So why would you fast when the bridegroom is present? You just wouldn't do that. I found this... Uh, fun because I'm of Arab descent. I'm, my grandparents came from Lebanon, and my grandmother used to talk about her wedding. Uh, and we think of a wedding here in America today. It's, a, it's a, you know an hour-long event with maybe a four-hour, three, four-hour uh, reception afterward. But in my family, my grandmother used to talk about how they spent seven days uh, feasting and partying, and, and there was probably a little bit of alcohol involved, that her wedding lasted for seven full days. And when I tell that to people here, they're like, wow, you know, how do they do that? But that was the kind of, kind of perception uh, that we, we don't see here in America, but that's what happened actually back then. And so this idea of fasting then was, a, was a not, um, not a thing that you want to do while the, while the groom is there. Let's move on as we are okay. deep into this book. Now comes uh, Jesus last week, and uh, uh, we, we definitely have to hear about this, Mike. Yeah, in this, this section of the book, um, I, gotta, I have to tell you the truth. When I was um, working on this, it would take me about a, about a week to go through a chapter in Matthew to write it up. Um, and then I got into this last week and into the, the crucifixion of, of Christ. And, boy, uh, I mean, I have read, I've read the Bible, I don't know how many times, and I've read the stories of the last week and the crucifixion of Christ so many times. Uh, but I got into this, um, into this moment when I just couldn't do it. I would read the, 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 I would begin to read the story of the crucifixion, and it would just it would just break me down. Uh, it took me nearly a month uh, to write the one chapter on the on the crucifixion of Christ, just because I finally realized, um, wow, this was not just a, a something we talk about at Easter and, and Thanksgiving. This is a, a, an enormous thing. Anyway, as we're looking at the last week of Christ, um, one of the questions I got was, what did Moses and Elijah say to Jesus when he was? Transfigured. You know, there was that moment where Jesus on the mountain and Moses and Elijah appeared to him and began talking with him. Uh, I, I, I didn't want to try that one because I was like, I don't know what they said. But I finally went into it and I was like, well, we don't have a record of the actual conversation that took place at the time of Christ's transfiguration. But we do have the benefit of multiple author viewpoints reporting on this event. So Matthew and Mark give roughly the same summary, saying that Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. But Luke... Uh, on the other hand, was able to give a little insight. Um, according to Luke, uh, Jesus and Moses and Elijah spoke about Jesus' departure when he was to bring fulfillment at Jerusalem. The word departure there was uh, familiar to us because it's the same word that was used from the Israelites and slavers, the word exodus. And so, um, in other words, they began to speak at that time about the upcoming death uh, of Jesus and the new true exodus, the consequent uh, coming upon Israel, God's visiting His people at last. I just, I was uh, glad to learn something about that, and it was interesting to me that, that that was what they spoke about was not what Jesus had already accomplished, not what He had already done, but what was to come uh, that would actually change everything. Now, <clears throat> Mike, it's time for you to discuss with us the resurrection. 
Yeah, that was such a fun. After coming through the the crucifixion of Christ, uh, that was such a fun time to finally be able to say, yes, here it is. This is where we this is where we get to to find out the good news, the really good news. I was in a Bible study with a prison group last week, two weeks ago, and I was sitting there, and there was a guy across the room who was um, taking notes the whole time. He was writing and writing, and then afterward, I just kind of struck up a conversation with him, and as we're talking, he said, hey, can I ask you a question? And I said, well, sure. What do you have? And he said, what does this word mean? And he pointed to his notes, and he had written down the word gospel. And I thought, well, at first I thought he's joking with me, right? Everybody knows what gospel means, but he was not. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, it just means good news. It means that um, Christ has come, and this has become a good thing for us. And it really hit me right in that moment that this really is good news. How do we forget that? How do I just get so wrapped up in my study and daily life that I forget the the radical um, aspect of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, and that was something that they called good news back then, gospel, which becomes the best news that we could ever have today. We have this idea, um, there are a lot of theories and ideas about, oh, well, he didn't really rise from the dead, this happened, that happened. Um, but what one thing, the one thing that no one ever contests, that no one can contest, is that Jesus Christ's grave was empty. Even in Jesus' time, they couldn't. They couldn't contest the fact that the grave was empty. Uh, the only thing they could do was make up a conspiracy theory that the disciples stole his body while the guards slept, um, which, you know, first of all, guards, Roman guards sleeping at, on duty was a crime punishable by death. So for the fact, the fact that the, they were willing to say that was a pretty extreme thing. Secondly, the guards were supposed to be able to identify who stole the body while they were sleeping. So there must be some kind of weird... Um, kind of dreaming going on, but um, I just, I have to say, I'm floored again by the idea that Jesus actually did rise from the grave. This is what changes my world, what changes the world, what changes all of eternity, and it's just an enormous, enormously beautiful thing. Mike Napa, what do you want people to take from your book in this discussion? I um, I just hope, I hope that this is something that people will take into coffee shops, that they'll sit down and drink coffee and, and talk about with their friends. My wife, uh, while she was living, used to go to the coffee shop two or three times a week, and she would just meet with friends. And she'd come home, and I'd say, hey, how'd it go? And she'd say, great, you know, so-and-so's uh, got a new garden working growing and also we had this really interesting discussion about the theology of heaven and then she'd go and then and you know we talked about this new movie coming and i said wait a minute wait a minute you guys talked about gardens and movies and then theology of heaven all in the same conversation and she would just look at me like yeah what's weird about that and i thought that's the way it should be that's why i i created this thing called coffee shop theology we should be able to just sit down and talk about jesus like it's not uh, out of the ordinary we should be able to go get coffee talk about our favorite movies, and then slip right into the theology of, of heaven or the, the theories of the resurrection. We should be able to talk in a way that's just normal. So that's what I hope. I hope that this helps people talk about Jesus and the Bible without making it weird. Uh, that's, that's kind of what I'm hoping for. Speaking of a little visit with Matthew, uh, what would you like to ask him? <laughs> if I were sitting down with Matthew... I would like to ask him uh, about the moment when he walked away from his booth to follow Jesus, because we know that Matthew uh, was a tax collector before uh, he followed Jesus. And in that society, the tax collector was um, well, uh, both a traitor uh, and a thief, uh, stealing from his own people in order to pad his pockets and then pay to Rome. It would be like if someone in Ukraine started collecting taxes for Russia. Um, and that is a, that's an enormous decision to make, that kind of decision to say, I'm going to be a traitor to my own people and just for the return of money. Uh, that seems like a, a bridge burned, a never, never turning back from kind of decision. And yet, when Christ came and said, follow me, he didn't hesitate. 
he stood up and he ran, practically ran uh, to follow Jesus. So if I could sit down with Matthew, I'd say, I want you to tell me about that moment. What was going through your mind? How did Christ just standing there in front of you change uh, your desire for money and power into just a desire to serve and follow him? Folks, my guest has been Mike Napa. The book, Bible Smart, Matthew, Q&A for the Curious Soul. Uh, I just want to remind you that we are working hard trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, and you can be a big help. Go up to the website, orlandodreamers.com, orlandodreamers.com, and and let us hear from you. We need to show Major League Baseball that there is enormous interest down here in Central Florida, and and you can be a big help, orlandodreamers.com. We've got more here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay with us. It's AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Mike Napa, our guest in that first segment, he's out in Colorado, and we talked about his book, Bible Smart, Matthew, Q&A for the Curious Soul. Well, we go from Colorado to Nicaragua. We found Andy Partington there, uh, author of Hope in Addiction, Understanding and Helping Those Caught in Its Grip. Andy, uh, welcome to Central Florida. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Pat. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. What do you do in Nicaragua? What, what's your work there? So, Pat, we work uh, with something called Novo Communities. Uh, Novo Communities' vision is to empower God's people, uh, particularly in developing nations, to offer healing, wholeness, and hope to people caught in addiction. So, really, what we do as Novo is we come up alongside people who've got a heart to work, uh, particularly in residential settings, um, to help them really to do effective Christ Center's work with the addicted. Uh, so we train, we mentor, um, and, and down in Bolivia, we've got a, we've got a, well, I guess it's a model program. We've got a, we've got to work there amongst men in addiction that, that really is our, our flagship and it's the, it's the place we do a lot of the training and, uh, and the equipping of, of others. Andy, the introduction to your book is called On the Shadow Side. What does that mean? It, it, it flows from a trip I, I took to the States just in the, in the closing weeks before the pandemic hit, in that, in that time that we look back on, and it, and it seems strange now, but we had no sense of the pandemic then. But I was traveling through the U.S., and um, I took time in, in L.A., in the suburbs, down in Skid Row. I spent time there. I went to Vegas. I went across to Huntington, West Virginia. And I really left with this, this sense of urgency about the issue. You know, we hear words like addiction epidemic. We, we hear the numbers around addiction. You know, we hear that drug overdoses is the leading cause of death in the, in the under-50s in the U.S. That's, that's the equivalent of two seven three sevens dropping out of the sky every single day um, through overdoses. So, so we hear the numbers. We, we hear the concepts. But for me, that journey... Uh, brought me to this place when I, I just was struck. And, of course, I'm a Brit, so I'm, I'm learning, and I'm, I'm a, a massive lover of America. Uh, and so I, I, I just was so struck by the fact that I saw so much of, of the American dream, so much of the possibility, the opportunity, uh, the, the impact on, on the world. Um, and then with the addiction issue especially, this sense that there was a shadow side, the sense that whilst there's so much that's right uh, with American society, with British society, with, 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 with many places in our world. There's so much that's good and right, and yet what is it that causes so many to retreat into the world of addiction, into substances and behaviors that, 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 that really offer an escape route out of life? Well, why is that? Why is there this shadow side uh, alongside so much that's good? Now, a chapter one in your book is called One in Five. Explain. One in five. So one of the he's run into all sorts of interesting stats and, and, and information. One of them was that addiction globally affects one in five people. And so that's 
that's one in five either in active addiction themselves or the child of someone in addiction, the partner and or spouse of someone in addiction, a, a parent. Um, so it was really, that really draws, that, that whole chapter is really drawing the attention to the scale of the addiction issue. So globally, we spend twice as much dealing with addiction as we do on cancer. That, that's, that's the scale of the, the issue we're dealing with. And of course, again, behind the numbers are the stories and the suffering and the despair. And, and you'll know when you sit down with someone who's loved ones in addiction or who themselves just cannot get out of this thing, it's just heartbreaking. It, it's this tragic, difficult, dark place that people find themselves. And so, again, the book is saying, how do we understand that? What's going on? And, and how, as God's people, can we respond uh, effectively and, and full of compassion? When supply meets demand, what are you writing there for us, Andy? So when supply meets the demand is zeroing in on, on the fact that we've got this, this kind of heady cocktail um, at this point in time where there really are un- unprecedented levels of, of addictive, addictive substances and access to behaviors that addict uh, in, in, in our world. You know, so you can flick open your smartphone right now and, and two clicks, you're at pornography. Two clicks, you're at gambling. And, and even as we know, in, in the way we interact with these devices, there's, there's something kind of powerful about, you know, the, the Facebook feed that never ends, the Netflix feed that never ends. So we, we seek incredible levels of supply, and that's, and that's behavioral addiction stuff. What about the levels of access that we now have to alcohol, to drugs, to these, to these substances that, that really do cause us harm, and not just illegal. So 80% of the world's opioid supply, so that's synthetic painkillers, things like Vicodin, Percocet, Oxycodone, 80% of those substances are sold to 4% of the world's population on U.S. soil. So we have in our midst this incredible supply, but I don't think that's the whole story as to why we see so much addiction. You know, they're, 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 the supply tap, and there's been some very interesting research done into this, but the supply tap can be wide open, and, and, and you don't necessarily see high levels of addiction. The reality is we have to ask ourselves, okay, why is there so much demand? And then in the next two chapters, I'm exploring, okay, what are the drivers of demand for addictive experiences in, in our society. Andy, I want you to talk about those two topics, despair and emptiness and adversity yeah. and disconnection. What's, what's going on? Yeah, so despair and emptiness, adversity and disconnection. They, they, there's a Scottish proverb um, which, which says this. It says, they speak of my drinking but never my thirst. They speak of my drinking, but never my thirst. And as we, as we explore this issue, we, we tend to focus on the big numbers, on the things we can measure and control. But really what each of those chapters is driving into is like, why do we have this thirst? Why are we so hungry for these experiences? So uh, when we talk about um, despair and emptiness, um, I was especially struck during my time in, in, in West Virginia by the the stories of, of, of people who, 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 in a sort of deindustrialized context, were struggling to know what life held for them, and and and, and through pain and painkillers, found themselves hooked on 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 pain on pain pills, and couldn't find a way forward. So the, the hopelessness is, is really saying, hey, there's a lot of people in our world who actually have serious concerns about what the future looks like. They're not sure whether their life is going to be better than the lives of their parents. Emptiness is, is another one of these four elements, which is really this sense, which as you talk to people in addiction, time, and I explore this in the book, time and time again, people describe feeling a great big hole within themselves. And, and so as they seek to make sense and they explain why did they, why did they get into drugs in the first place? Why did they go down this path? They say, at the core, there was this hole I was trying to fill. I, I, just, I just didn't feel good enough. I just, something was missing. Um, 
then adversity and disconnection. So there's a tremendous correlation between uh, adverse childhood experiences, things like abuse, uh, things like child neglect, um, the experience of growing up in a home with addiction present, um, the experience of growing up in, in a home where divorce takes place. There's a tremendous uh, correlation between that in one's childhood and then adult addiction. So what I'm doing there is really just exploring, okay, what, what, what are these things and how do they lead us into addiction? Um, and then disconnection. So the fourth sort of driver or, 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 or element of, of this seabed that creates such a kind of addicted society is this sense that um, many of us are alone in a way that we've never been before. We, we live separate lives. We, we bowl alone. Um, we post-industrial post, uh, revolution, our cars enabled us to separate and to live very disconnected lives. Now with the internet revolution, on the one hand, we're able to connect like never before. You know, a conversation like this is, is possible and it's wonderful. And yet we find increasing numbers who say, I don't have any close friends. I don't know who I call in a crisis. I, I'm online. I'm alone. And, and so it's, each of those four elements, I believe, and, and I believe that the research uh, confirms this, is, is, is they, they create a seabed for addiction, and, and they create a very difficult context for recovery from addiction. My guest in Nicaragua, Andy Partington. Andy, we move to part two. We've got a minute and a half for you to talk about enslaving solution. Explain. Enslaving solutions. So if you go around the world and you ask people, okay, um, why, why are you using these things? What, what is this doing for you? Many of us are from the outside. We assume it's all to do with pleasure. We, we assume that people live this lifestyle because it, it makes them feel good. Now, at least initially, that might well be the case. Initially, that might well be the case. But actually, as you dig into people's stories, I, I, I remember so clearly I worked at a drug rehab in the UK for a number of years, and walking one of the residents who was leaving the program prematurely um, down our long redwood line driveway, talking to him and saying, listen, man, what, 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 it's, the good feelings are not going to last. Like, like it's only going to be temporary. Shot straight back at me. He said, Andy, it's not going to feel good at all. That's not what I do it. And so that chapter is re- exploring the sense in which actually addictions take root because the behavior and experience offers a solution to an underlying problem. You know, and, and, and what causes people to get stuck in it is, is really to do with, okay, you have to ask, what, what is this experience? How is this experience meeting the person out there where they've got the greatest levels of need? You know, what is it, how is it providing peace, healing, a sense of belonging, a sense of escape? And, and that's really how addictions take root. My guest in Nicaragua, Andy Partington, uh, we're talking about his book, Hope and Addiction. Uh, we've got more with Andy. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word in Orlando will be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Andy Partington is in uh, Nicaragua. We're talking about his book, Hope and Addiction, Understanding and Helping Those Caught in Its Grip. Andy, explain this chapter, Toxic Relationship. What's that mean? Mm-hmm. I had a really, a really good friend, um, when I, when I first began working at a place called Yeldo Manor, uh, a Christian drug rehab in the southeast of England, uh, a guy called Marcus, and uh, he said a thing that, that was super enlightening to me. Uh, he said, uh, when he was using drugs, he was in recovery himself, he said, heroin was my wife, but crack was the girlfriend and the pleasure and the thrill of it all. And, and what that did was open my eyes to the, the fact that Addictions function like relationships in, in people's lives. Toxic relationships, but, but relationships. And time and time again, as you, you go, we're trying to make sense of why do people continue in these lifestyles? Why do people continue with it? 
people describe it in relational terms. You know, I've, I, I, I've heard people say, drugs were my running buddy. Alcohol was my counselor, my therapist. Um, my, my, it, was, it was like a father figure in my life. It was like the safety of, of my mother's embrace. Um, and so I think as we try to understand and work alongside people in, in, in addiction and those who are, who are in recovery, it's super helpful to recognize you're dealing with something with the complexity uh, and the depth of a, of a relationship. And then, of course, for some, you know, the, 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 there's also this, 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 this very clear sense in which the, the substance, the behavior can take on this godlike role in someone's life. And so, actually, the, the, while the, the heart to follow God might be there and, and the desire, um, actually, gradually, this relationship with the substance becomes, comes to dominate and it, and it becomes a, a really a form of, of idolatry in, in someone's life. Next topic for you, the, uh, the apparatus of a- addiction. I want to hear about this. Mm, yeah. So, you know, we talk about how addictions begin. Addictions solve a problem. Uh, addictions present an answer, uh, and a good one, a really effective one. You know, <laughs> we're, we're dealing with good quality solutions, but on a temporary basis. And so, really, with the as we talk about the apparatus of addiction, we're talking about the brain and trying to understand why we get stuck in these behaviors, why X days, months, years into someone's relationship with, with whatever it might be, the object of their addiction, why is it it's so hard to escape? Uh, why is it that, that people suffer so intensely simply because they can't make that choice? And what we're talking about there is really the way the brain changes as we use these very powerful, rewarding um, behaviors. Um, I, I liken it down in Bolivia. We used to live down in South America, um, and that's where the focus of, of Novo's work is at the moment. Um, down there, there's lots of dirt roads, and, and we, we also run a business called Novo Adventures, which offers motorcycle tours to international tourists, um, one, two-week tours that, that fund the work uh, of Novo Community. And we'd be out on these tours, and um, sometimes after the rains, the, the, the ruts in the road get very deep, and they go on and on and on. And so what happens is when you're riding along on a motorcycle, if you get into one of those ruts, it's really difficult to get out. You know, there are foot deep, there's sometimes more. You, you really struggle to get out. When you finally get out, you find a little off-ramp, you're riding along the side of these big, deep ruts in the ground, it's very easy to slip back in because those ruts don't disappear. They stay there. And it's a really helpful picture for us as we try to understand the addictive brain, that as we repeat these very powerful, rewarding activities, pathways get set, habits get formed in our brains, in the, in the, in the sort of the meat of our brains. And so to escape is difficult because it's like we're running along these ruts and we can't get out. But also, even long-term in recovery, it's very easy to slip back in. and We have to be on our guard constantly because those ruts remain. Even as we then build new pathways and new ways of thinking, those old habits, those old ways of doing things are, are always going to be there and dangerous for us. My guest in Nicaragua, Andy Partington, we're talking about his book, Hope and Addiction. We moved to part three, and uh, here's the chapter I want you to explain to us, Andy. I can't, but we can. Yeah, yeah. It's a... Uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a phrase from the 12-step movement. Another way is put it, of putting it is no one can do it for you, but you can't do it alone. Um, and when you start looking at hope and addiction, um, one of the central features is that we get well, we recover with others. And, 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 and none of us as a lone ranger are able to defeat this thing. Um, it's, it's about coming together with others. It's about honesty. It's about accountability. It's about, um, it's about finding hope together in community. Uh, so that's what that chapter just explores how, it, how recovery works, um, what the, the process looks like, um, and, and the central role of, of one another in, in the past. Explain to us beyond Batman. What's that mean? So this is really, for me, like the, the, the most exciting chapter of the book. Um, 
the on Batman is is driving into okay, well, what is the where does the good news, where does the gospel fit in all of this? You know, I'm a firm believer there's there's all sorts of things that we need to understand about addiction and recovery that, that aren't really to do with the gospel. But the best foundation for long-term freedom for addiction is a living relationship with, with God, um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the, the dynamic of, of all three elements of, of, of God's person. Um, so Beyond Batman, the reason it's called Beyond Batman is because um, I, I do a comparison between Spider-Man and Batman. So both Spider-Man and Batman um, perform incredible feats. The Spider-Man does what Spider-Man does because he's been bitten uh, by this toxic spider, and something changes on the inside. Whereas Batman Bat does what Batman does because he's got the tools for the job. He's got the batarang. He's got a Batmobile. Um, he's he's equipped right for the business uh, that he does. So when we talk about Beyond Batman, I'm saying, hey, there's so much Batman stuff we need to know about. We need to know about 12-step support groups. We need to know about relapse prevention planning. We need to know about counseling and therapy and, and rehabs and, and all, the, all of these brilliant, important tools that we have. But actually, as God's people, we also need to firmly remember that in the gospel, we have got access. We have got the introduction to this inside-out transformation that, that Christ brings about in our lives. Um, and, 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 and I get a call to the church to, to be bold and to be confident in, in, in proclaiming that message and, and, and leading people into a, a living relationship with, with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Tell me this, Andy, your last chapter, Rat Pack Church, means what? Yeah, so it's it's Rap Park Church. Oh, Rap Park. Oh, forgive uh, me. <laughs> no, it's, it's fine. I, I kind of like the idea of Rap Pack Church. Actually, <laughs> but <laughs> that's that's that I'll, I'll work on that for the next. One. Yeah, but yeah, so the Rap Park um, was an experiment, a set of experiments, a whole set of experiments conducted back in the in the seventies, where. Um, a Canadian um, psychiatrist who was, who was working with rats, trying to understand addiction, suddenly was struck by the fact that the way, until that point in time, they used something called a Skinner box to, um, to test how rats responded to access to, to drugs uh, and to sugary substances and to a whole set of things. What a Skinner box was, was a, was a single box that a single rat went into and, and where they had this, this access to these substances. And, of course, in that context, the rats would just click and click and click and click, and they would consume it to the point of, of death. They would just, just keep going. So up until that point, our understanding of addiction was, okay, there are these powerful hooks in these substances that cause addiction, and we're powerless to stop it. Bruce Alexander was, a, was, a, was the, uh, the researcher who, who, who said, well, that's not really how it works in the real world. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't quite make sense. Not everyone who uses drugs gets addicted, and et cetera, et cetera. So what he did was design something called Rat Park, which was this, um, this enclosure where um, a whole you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 rats at a time would all be together, and they'd have running wheels, and they'd have water, and they'd be able to mate with one another, and just created a social environment for these rats. And then alongside that, gave them, again, access to these powerful addictive substances. Um, and what he found was when the rats were in Rat Park, their use of those substances plummeted. In fact, what he found was even if you got a rat addicted prior to entering Rat Park, it would taper off its, its, its use and would return to sort of a normal relationship with these substances. So the whole idea is actually relationships and community is vital to understanding why addictions form and how we recover. You know, that we, again, we're, no one can do it for you, but you can't do this alone. And so in the Rat Park Church chapter, I'm saying, okay, as the church, as God's people, how do we become a place where uh, we prevent addiction, where we promote recovery, where we, we, we enable one another to, to live well in, a, in an addictive world. My, my guest is uh, 
my friend Andy Partington down in Nicaragua. One more thing for you, Andy. The conclusion is called Together in the Wilderness. Explain. Yeah, so it's a, it's a wrap-up, um, really, which focuses on as the, as the loved ones, and, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be listening thinking, yeah, my brother, my son, my dad, my, my sister, my auntie, whatever it might be, how, how, do we, how do we walk alongside someone in a way that's, that's going to be uh, life-giving, that's going to protect us? And really, it is a lot like walking through the wilderness with someone. If you look at God's people in the wilderness, it was a long, long journey. It was a hostile, difficult journey. And if you look at addiction, it's okay to accept this is a really difficult thing to escape. And this is, this is a long-haul journey. Now, what did, what, did, what did God's people do in the wilderness? They, they stuck together and what went off on their own. They had to take it one day at a time because <laughs> the manor only arrived on a daily basis. Um, and they stuck close to God's presence. You know, they, they, they stayed real close to that fire and to, to that, that cloud. So as, as we wrap up, it's, it's, there's an encouragement to those who walk alongside a loved one in addiction um, to, 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 to draw encouragement from that to protect themselves, um, to, to wrestle with the, the questions of, okay, at what point do I shift from giving care and loving and helping to, to then doing something more and to beginning to enable and to take control from my loved one. So Andy. it wraps up really just on that pastoral note saying, hey, how do we love someone who's close to us, who's on the road to recovery, um, but, 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 but on a long road? Andy Partington has been my guest. The book, Hope in Addiction. Thanks for joining me here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power. Power Hour, we're here every weekend. Join us here on AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Have a wonderful week ahead. We'll see you next weekend. God bless. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time, where faith comes by hearing. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.